Thank you so much. What a privilege uh, to be here. And um, um, by, I have a towel that I was using before, so if we need to pass that around the room. Um, usually you think of throwing in the towel at the end of the talk. I was using it uh, at the, uh, the beginning. So thank you, truly what a stalwart uh, audience. Um, a real honor to uh, be here at uh, the University of Chicago and uh, thank you to all of the sponsors of this evening's event and really honored to uh, be the uh, uh, in initial, the uh, uh, first speaker in the Health and Human Rights uh, series. So uh, th thank you uh, so much for that heartfelt uh, um, honor. Um, what I I'm going to be talking tonight about is my work in caring and advocating for uh, torture survivors. I should tell you right off the bat, you know, you need to, you need to bring somebody out of, from out of town to talk about things, but I would, must start this evening by saying that you should realize within your own city, within your own backyard, you truly have a gem uh, of one of the foremost centers uh, in caring for uh, survivors of uh, torture, the uh, Marjorie Kovler uh, Center. And we have a number of individuals here from the center. They're, they're seated over here, uh, Scott Portman, Mary Fabry, uh, Mary Black, Mario Gonzalez, and uh, Aaron Spevacek. And if I could just ask all of you to stand up. So I'd be thrilled if you, I'd be thrilled if you donate to us or something, but if you don't, donate to them and donate your time and your efforts and learn more about the extraordinary uh, work they do. Mary, I should also acknowledge, is the president of the National Consortium for Torture Treatment Programs. And so I have, a real, uh, have had the real pleasure of getting to work with her as well as closely with uh, Scott, um, two of the most compassionate, passionate individuals I've had the privilege uh, to, uh, to know. So honored uh, to be with them and my other colleagues from, uh, from the Kovler Center. So um, this is, I want to acknowledge, uh, a disturbing topic. And you know, whenever I tell people that I work with victims of torture, they, they begin to wonder a little bit. And then I tell them that my wife uh, actually is a domestic violence advocate and works with battered women, and they really get a little concerned. And I, I always say, you know, we're really, we're not a morose couple. Um, we, we play a lot of miniature golf during the summer, and that, that seems to keep us grounded. Um, I'm not sure if that reassures you or makes you more concerned, but, uh, or putt-putt, I guess, as it's, as it's called uh, out, out, out here. Um, but uh, I'm gonna th I, I want to acknowledge just at the outset, this is a very disturbing uh, topic. Uh, these are very disturbing times, and uh, in, in ways I think I never anticipated when I started doing this work, uh, would this be so timely and relevant? And would the issues of caring and advocating for uh, survivors of torture and trying to uh, prevent torture and speak out about it be so, uh, so present? Certainly I will try and leave time, at I will leave time at the end for questions, but I want to make this as much a dialogue as possible. So please, any uh, questions, comments, or thoughts, uh, by all means, uh, let me uh, stop and and, uh, and 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 let me uh, let me know. So uh, and, and I realize there's several individuals who are at a talk I gave earlier at the uh, med school today. So I apologize for redundancy. Although I challenge you to we could do a little study in uh, inter uh, interrater reliability uh, of uh, wondering about things uh, that I say in accuracy. So I always think it's important to know how does somebody get you know, from point A to point B. And I, I said this earlier that a little bit of it is through planning, 
A little bit, a lot of it is by chance, and a little as my grandma Sadie used to say in Yiddish by Bashert, or uh, fate, or as my Tibetan patients say, karma. So I actually, uh, in the middle of medical school, and that's a younger me, looking unusually tall because I'm surrounded by uh, Cambodian refugees, after second year of medical school, had uh, spent uh, way too much time studying the molecular biology of collagen. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with collagen. Um, and just was, was really burnt out and decided I wanted to work overseas. And got a list of voluntary agencies um, and be, truly, beginning with the A's, called the first one on the list, the American Refugee Committee, who happened to have a position working in Thailand with Cambodian refugees. And so really, within a few weeks, um, I was uh, uh, working, working overseas. Um, and in this camp, this was my introduction. One, I saw fascinating illnesses, but I also learned a lot about what's become my, much of my life's work and passion, this interrelationship between health and human rights, and working with individuals and populations, uh, immigrants, refugees who have suffered horrific trauma. And in the camp where I worked, there were roughly, I don't know, two or 300,000 Cambodians, and basically every Khmer that I knew had lost their entire families under the brutal reign of the Khmer Rouge, or during civil war, that these individuals had not lost their families because of natural disasters, although, as we've seen in recent events, uh, nature's uh, rage can be uh, formidable, uh, but from clearly human-made, and I should even use, a, it, it would be gender appropriate to say man-made um, uh, suffering. Um, and so this was my introduction to listening to trauma stories, hearing these horrific events about individuals who'd been tortured who'd witnessed family uh, members uh, uh, killed. And it was, quite frankly, this chance event that, uh, that uh, in, in, in many ways uh, changed uh, my life. Um, I remember actually when I went overseas, when I was about to go overseas, I have had, had a number of extraordinary mentors in my life. One, a fellow named Jack Geiger, who has done a lot of uh, sentinel work in health and human rights. And I had a very important question for Jack, which some of you may have in the audience, in terms of when I was going to go overseas. And I said to him, well, Jack, what do I tell my mother? Um, and he said, well, tell her you're making a house call. Uh, so I did. She didn't quite buy it, but uh, it, uh, it, it, uh, it, it worked. Um, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about health and human rights and the interrelationship. And the thesis I'll develop through my work primarily with torture survivors uh, is that when human rights are promoted, health is promoted. When human rights are violated, there are really horrific health consequences for both the individual and the community. Um, it's been said that when one individual in the community is tortured, and I'll talk a lot more about what I mean since there's been a lot of talk about what this word means, um, that when one individual is tortured, the entire community is tortured as well through a ripple effect or even a uh, tsunami of uh, fear, terror, and horror. So human rights on one hand and health on the other, and this definition, as you know, of health coming from uh, the World Health Organization of a state of physical, mental, and social well-being. And it, these dimensions of health are also all interdependent. Um, clearly in med school, a lot of our time is spent learning about health from a pathophysiological model, the absence of disease. 
Um, and similarly often with human rights. We think of human rights as the absence of perpetration, but it's, it's also a, a, in, a, in, a, in the affirmative sense as well. And so in my work with torture victims, I care for many individuals who've been brutally beaten. And uh, you know, they may well have significant physical problems as a result of having beaten. They must feel skeletal pain, bruises, broken bones. Um, when uh, that, that pain, however, may manifest also as profound psychological symptoms, anxiety, uh, sleep disturbances, um, uh, symptoms of sadness, hopelessness, humiliation, um, and then social consequences, isolation, fear, terror. Um, I, I often ask the patients who, uh, or I'm, a, I'm an internist, so I'll often use the term patients, many of my colleagues uh, mental health professionals, social workers will, will say clients, maybe we should say brothers and sisters. Um, but uh, I'll ask them, how are you different now compared to before what you suffered? And, and they'll often say, you know, well, before I, I felt I was very outgoing and, and now I, I really keep to myself. I, I don't feel comfortable around people. So I think what, what our program and what actually more than 25 centers around the country and actually uh, more than 100 around the world working with survivors of torture and other trauma try to do is to help restore a sense of trust, restore a sense of safety, and help individuals get on with their lives. And so certainly while there's a lot of horror in the things I'm going to be talking about, I, I don't want you and I certainly don't lose sight of the hope and the extraordinary resilience of, uh, of the human uh, spirit. Um, so just in terms of human rights, we think of, we think of actually torture as the classic civil and political right. Um, but just as with health, human rights are inter interdependent and interrelated. That clearly, uh, in order to have torture not occur, or when tor torture does occur, there's also untoward social uh, rights consequences, persecution leading to job discrimination, ha being forced to uh, flee uh, one's country and, and have to uh, re resettle. Um, and to prevent torture requires education, education of police forces, having a functioning legal uh, system, appropriate uh, you know, training and job opportunities. So these human rights, just as with the dimensions of health, it's crucial to think of as interdependent. Um, and uh, when, we're, when we're thinking that way, I think it helps us move beyond kind of this narrow construct of, oh, as torture is, 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 is simply or solely a, a civil and political issue. So, you know, what can we as physicians do or health professionals do in promoting human rights? And I actually see at least four functions. You know, first is uh, identification. It's been said that within medicine, and not to pathologize this too much, um, that in order to make a diagnosis, you first have to think about it. So it's sure that if you're working with women, you're working with individuals who've been battered. It's sure if you're working with children, you're working with children who've suffered child abuse. And it's sure if you're working with immigrant and refugee populations, you're uh, interacting with individuals who may well have experienced horrific traumas. Now, it's not to say whether or not those individuals will have or what health manifestations they'll have, but at least something to think about in terms of asking, you know, well, why did you leave your country? Or can, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, about your country and, 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 and your experiences uh, there? Um, and uh, so, so identification, first thinking about this and thinking about other human rights concerns, be it access to care, 
I mean, I always think about when I'm in the medical clinic at Bellevue, if I write a prescription for a patient, but I'm not thinking about how that patient is going to fill the prescription, then that piece of paper becomes almost a cruel um, joke. So treatment, ensuring access to care, providing care and integrating medical, mental health, and social services. Documentation, using our skills as health professionals or scientists to document human rights abuses, be it as an individual in uh, examining torture victims and documenting both physical and psychological uh, findings. Uh, and I should say this is a field that's undergone enormous uh, growth and maturity in, in the last several years. There, um, and actually one of the sentinel figures uh, uh, was uh, here in Chicago, uh, Bob, Bob Kirshner, who uh, many of you I know uh, knew, who passed away several years ago, who truly a sentinel figure in, the, uh, in, 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 in documenting uh, torture, and who was actually somebody I would often call up, sometimes literally if I was in the room with, with, with a patient and looking at a scar and not quite sure what to make of it, and, or I'd, I'd, if I was being more uh, uh, appropriate, step out of the room at least, and then talk to him and say, this is what I'm seeing, what do you think? And he would you know, give me a, a differential diagnosis and, 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 and questions to think about and ways to describe it that I hadn't thought. Truly one of the great minds uh, as well as passionate and compassionate individuals that I've had the privilege to know. So documenting either for the individual or on the larger level, be it doing a study of the prevalence of, uh, of human rights abuses um, or their, Im their health impact. And then finally, and, and, and crucially, advocacy, that it's not enough to care for the individual, although that's important, or to do the study, but that we have to speak out about these issues, um, and we have to uh, let the world, let, uh, let our, uh, our, our government, our policymakers know about this, and educate our colleagues, educate uh, the, the public uh, about, uh, about these things. So when I first started doing uh, work with uh, torture survivors, I thought, well, this is really a medieval phenomena, you know, racks, dungeons, chains, but uh, tragically, uh, torture is alarmingly uh, common. It's documented to occur in more than 90 countries around the world, um, and it's estimated in anywhere from 5 to 35 uh, percent of all immigrants, ref of refugees and asylum seekers may well have been victims of, uh, of uh, torture. And a much higher number experienced traumatic events from war. Um, as we know, the entire nature of war has changed. Um, you know, if you looked, uh, say, 75 years ago, in a given war, what was it, 90% of the uh, fatalities were, uh, were, were the soldiers. That figure actually has been turned on its head now that in most conflicts, uh, you know, close to 90% of the fatalities are actually civilians. And when you think about over the last 20 or 30 years, the number of individuals displaced by war and violence is staggering, literally in the hundreds of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of millions. And here in the United States alone, it's estimated that there's uh, uh, more than 400,000 individuals who have uh, fled uh, from torture. And torture is an, uh, a really traumatic thing, but it's important to appreciate that it may well be one of many horrific events that individuals have experienced, and not necessarily even the most traumatic. Trauma is clearly something that happens within a context, um, and uh, many of the patients we uh, care for have suffered a number 
of uh, things. And in our program and in many of the other centers, many of the individuals I care for clearly are torture victims, but we also care for individuals who have survived war and refugee trauma, but may not meet a uh, definition such, uh, such as this. So this is a UN uh, definition of torture, severe physical or mental suffering inflicted by someone acting in an official uh, capacity. Um, clearly, as perhaps we'll have time to talk about, this definition has been one there's been much uh, discussion. Um, I would even uh, go so far to say some surreal discussion in terms of the meanings of, uh, of these terms, although clearly language has meanings, although the context in which these discussions have been taken place, uh, which I fear have been often in the context of <coughs> rationalizing uh, uh, things, things that uh, we're doing uh, are uh, woefully uh, misguided. But rather than uh, focus on a, a definition, let me share with you um, <coughs> one of the, uh, the patients that I uh, have the privilege of caring for. <coughs> so uh, this in individual um, was, uh, was a fellow who was a, uh, uh, an advocate in his uh, country in, in, in Africa. He had organized some peaceful <coughs> demonstrations, and one day as he walked out of his classroom, so imagine you're walking out of a lecture hall like this, he uh, was grabbed by some plainclothes policeman, brought to uh, a local precinct where he was questioned about what he was doing, why he was doing it. And when he didn't give the answers that they liked, they began to beat him. They began to punch him. They began to kick him. They then uh, suspended him uh, <coughs> from his hand uh, <coughs> and put him on a chair. And they would kick the chair out from beneath him so he would be dangling uh, in the air. And only when he would cry out in pain, then they would put the chair out, chair back under, under him. Um, at one point during an interrogation session, they held a gun to his head, pulled the trigger in what's known as a common form of abuse of mock execution. He was thrown in a, an overcrowded cell uh, and would be brought out where he remained in that cell for several weeks and uh, every day or so he was brought out for further questioning, would be beaten uh, and then thrown back in the cell. Uh, eventually he was released and they said, you know, the next time we come for you, you better have the answers that, uh, that, that we want. Although it really wasn't so much about getting information and maybe we'll have this discussion as well in terms of the utility or futility as well as the morality of whether torture is ever justified. Uh, uh, you know, uh, but it's, it's important to understand that for many individuals, for most torture survivors around the world, it's not in the context of getting, eliciting information. It's in the context of intimidation, of intimidating both the individual and the entire community. So uh, this fella uh, subsequently learned that, again, the authorities were looking for him and fearing for his safety. He sold what few belongings he had. Um, he was lucky. He knew someone who knew someone who was able to, able to help him get a visa. So uh, he, he uh, and we'll talk about what happens when individuals arrive in this country without a visa. Um, but he arrived, uh, he, got, he got a plane ticket. He showed up at uh, JFK Airport not knowing anybody, not speaking uh, the language, uh, he's, he, he, uh, uh, the, the language, not, not speaking English. Um, pardon that arrogance. Um, <coughs> The language. Um, uh, so not, not, not speaking English, not knowing anyone, um, and was referred to a local church group that then referred him to uh, our program. And we get a lot of referrals. 
Um, and in our program at Bellevue and NYU, um, and we started back in 1995, and we've now cared for about 1,500 men, women, and children from over 70 different countries. In the last year alone, I think we cared for over 600 individuals, and the world being what it is, unfortunately, we're quite busy. We get anywhere from five or to 10 new requests for referrals a week. And a lot of the referrals come from human rights groups, from immigrant communities, from word of mouth. So he came to us, and uh, I sat in the room with him, and he had a lot of health problems. So let me just ask you, thinking back to that definition of health that I used, what do you think were some of the health issues? Uh, uh, I realize this is some medical, but even the non-medical folks here. What do you think were some of the health issues, using that definition of health as a state of physical, mental, and social well-being? What do you think uh, were some of the issues there? I'm sorry? He absolutely didn't have a job, um, and so it's the social health consequences. And in fact, for many of our patients, it's really like a shoots and ladders, more the shoot than the, than the ladder. Uh, at the beginning, he was an individual who I think was probably a few weeks away from having graduated, and so his degree really didn't, or almost degree, really didn't mean anything here. Um, he was on his way to becoming a, uh, you know, uh, he, he'd been studying business and was probably going to get you know, a fairly good job in his country, and now he was in a place where he didn't speak the language, he didn't have a job, he didn't have a, a, a work visa. So clearly, social issues such as, as work were, were, were prominent. What other health, uh, health concerns? Yes. <coughs> Isolated and mentally damaged. Tell me, what do you mean by mentally damaged? Right. Absolutely, and, 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 and issues of trust and safety are, are real, um, real concerns for a lot of uh, a lot of the individuals that we that we that we care for. Um, and it's interesting with some of the in communities we care for. For example, the Tibetan community is a very tightly knit community within uh, New York City. Uh, this, the, the African country this individual is from, he was actually very mistrustful of other individuals from his, uh, his, uh, his, his country. So he, even, he didn't even have a community within individuals from his country in, in, in New, York's, New York City. Um, so in terms of mentally damaged, um, uh, you know, clearly, this in, he, well, what do you think were some of the, the, the psychological health issues that... Uh, we, we, we were needed to be addressed with this individual. PTSD, now what, th th this is a term we hear, what, what, what do we mean by this? What's, tell me a little bit about PTSD. What, what is that? Post, okay. So the post implying that you've, and leave it to a general internist to, to talk about psychological um, issues. Um, but uh, so f that you've, you've suffered some trauma outside the realm of, of normal uh, experience um, and, and that in, in order for you to meet what's specific diagnostic criteria, it has to have been at least, I think, a month or two months after the trauma, and that you have to have a number of different kinds of symptoms uh, where you recurrent thoughts about what happened. Uh, you're trying to avoid thinking about what happened, and then you're always sort of agitated or often agitated and anxious about what happened. Now, these, there's actually a lot of debate in terms of the meanings 
of these diagnoses, and I actually view them more as, as tools. I think one has to be cautious of, of having them be pigeonholing and pathologizing um, individuals. Um, clearly, many of the individuals I care for are profoundly symptomatic, and one of the things we put a high priority on is um, uh, relieving uh, symptoms. Now, there's, you know, I think a lot of, you know, discussion and a lot of a sense of that arguably aren't their reactions normal reactions to what were really abnormal horrific events. So I, we view these symptoms in terms of the, what they mean to the individual and in terms of the burden of suffering that they, they pose to this individual. So he was suffering from a number of symptoms from this uh, clinical uh, uh, diagnosis or of what's called post-traumatic stress, that he was having recurrent nightmares about what had happened. Actually, he could barely sleep. Um, he would sleep maybe two or three hours a night. Uh, he would wake up with nightmares. He'd wake up in the middle of the night panicking. And so he really hadn't had uh, a good night's sleep in, uh, in, in, a, in a few, uh, in, in at least uh, several weeks. He also was suffering from profound feelings of sadness, hopelessness, a sense of guilt that he had left, but what had happened to his colleagues that he'd left behind. What in terms of, in, in terms of the physical health dimensions, um, he was suffering from an, a lot of musculoskeletal pain. He'd been suspended. And he was unique in that most of the individuals who come to us, it's often months, if not years, between when the abuse happened and when they make it to us. But uh, for him, it was actually a matter of a couple of weeks. And in fact, you can see he has fresh marks from where the shackles um, were, um, were, were, were applied. And so there was a lot that we tried to do to help him. And in fact, he was one of the first individuals in our program. And in many ways, that we, we kind of built our program around uh, this individual, or this is his, uh, his, his hand. Um, and so we provided him with, uh, with medical, uh, medical, uh, that's medical care. Um, and uh, he, he required physical therapy. When he first came to me, he could barely open and close his, uh, his arm. And when he did, he had severe weakness. Um, so he received both physical therapy and occupational therapy. Um, we provided him, he needed some medication to help him sleep so that he was able to finally get a good night's sleep. Um, we provided him with counseling, both individual and then in our program, we use a lot of groups. Um, we have a French-speaking uh, African torture survivors group. We have an English-speaking uh, African group. We have a Tibetan group. We have a woman's group. We found groups are very effective at, I think, addressing some of the issues that you alluded to uh, before in terms of isolation, a loss of, uh, a loss of uh, community. You know, it's always an issue that if you were to say to, to someone, actually, uh, some, someone from, you know, from Tibet, from Africa, or arguably somebody from outside of the New York City area, uh, that you need therapy, uh, they'll look at you like you're from Mars. But if you say, look, you know, we, we have a group of individuals who've experienced things similar to what you have, everyone understands uh, community. Um, and so uh, he subsequently um, did, uh, you know, did, ver did very well. Uh, he had significant relief of his symptoms. He uh, was uh, subsequently went on, went back to school. Uh, he's now working. He recently was married and actually just, uh, just had a baby um, about a month or two ago. Uh, <coughs> so I always say that, you know, there's nothing that we can do 
to undo the horrible things that have happened to individuals, but there's a lot that can be done to help individuals get on with their lives. And that's, I think, really important to remember and, and actually very, um, very gratifying. Um, one group we've cared a lot for are individuals from Tibet. And we actually did a small study a few years ago, and we just repeated a much larger study where we in interviewed about 1,200 Tibetan refugees arriving in uh, Dharamsala. And we found that basically one in every seven, 15% of the individuals we interviewed had a personal history of torture. And when we asked them if they had friends or immediate family who'd been tortured, it was nearly half. So again, what I was saying in terms of this, this torrential, not really a ripple effect, of uh, fear and terror. And actually, one of the uh, individuals that, uh, uh, several of the individuals they interviewed reported that one form of abuse they uh, had experienced was being forced to look into the sun for extended periods. And so I'm looking into his eyes, which actually, anytime we talk with a survivor or anytime we do something, it's potentially re-traumatizing. And I've got a an individual here who had been forced to look into the sun, and I'm trying to examine him, and I'm shining a light in his eyes, so not necessarily uh, the most benign. Similarly, when I go to get an electrocardiogram on a patient, uh, if, uh, if I'm worried about uh, some irregularity with their heartbeat, particularly uh, anxiety-provoking for somebody who may have uh, suffered uh, uh, electric uh, shock. So always trying to be, whenever I'm talking uh, with a survivor, caring with them, always thinking about, okay, what can I do to try and help the individual have some sense of control of the situation, and also what can I not do to try and uh, not re-traumatize uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, ind the individual. Um, again, in other communities, uh, a, a colleague of, uh, of mine, uh, Jim Jaronson, did a study in, uh, in uh, Minnesota documenting that among Somali Ethiopian refugees, roughly 44% uh, uh, had, had been tortured and su substantial uh, you know, significant burden of suffering uh, of, uh, of uh, symptoms. Um, similarly, a study done in the uh, Latino community in Los Angeles showing a very high incidence of, of torture and then of, uh, of, uh, of war-related uh, violence. Um, and this is a, an image of a, a Kosovar refugee. I had done a study, I participated in a study where we interviewed uh, back during the uh, Kosovar refugee crisis, a number of individuals who had fled. And this individual, she had not been tortured, but uh, sh her family had, she'd been separated from her family. She'd witnessed the men in her family marched up into the hills, and she didn't know what had happened to them. And when I took this picture, she still didn't know the fate of her, uh, of her family. So not tortured according to the UN Convention definition, but clearly suffering horrifically. And the name of our program is quite long enough, but we also care, as I said, for individuals who've suffered from, from refugee uh, trauma. And you know, this, these events which she had witnessed were uh, very, very devastating to her. So uh, you know, our, our level of uh, evil ingenuity and the various forms of abuse that we subject individuals to in terms of beatings, asphyxiations, uh, psychological forms of abuse. And it's important to understand that often these different forms of abuse are happening uh, during the same interrogation session or even simultaneously. Again, I want to acknowledge just several of these images I know are, are very, very disturbing. A common form of abuse known as falanga, beating on the, uh, the soles of the feet. If you were to examine somebody right afterwards, this is what it would look like. But frankly, I haven't seen this because by the time people come to me, it's, it's quite some time after the abuse, and that if you look at their feet, they, they will appear to the naked eye normal, although there are some 
fine examinations you can do to document. But it's important to realize that often the most common physical finding in examining torture survivors is no physical finding because you're interviewing people literally months or years after the abuse had happened. Uh, various forms of uh, imprisonment, being put in cages, subjected to uh, beatings and other forms of uh, humiliations, uh, shackling, uh, burns. Um, this was an individual who was burned uh, repeatedly by, uh, by cigarettes, beatings. These are some of the instruments of uh, torture that uh, individuals have, uh, have been uh, subjected to. Um, sexual uh, humiliations, both for men and for women. Many of the, uh, the men that in our program, as well as women, have uh, been, uh, been sexually assaulted. And there's profound uh, feelings of, of, of embarrassment and difficulty talking about these things. And I actually have had many patients who I don't find out for months or, or longer many of the things that uh, happened to them. And that this is an image uh, drawn by, I believe, a, an Argentinian uh, survivor of torture uh, trying to explain how, how he felt sort of imprisoned, uh, trapped, caged in, and so often the psychological symptoms as, if not far more, devastating than, um, than the physical themselves. And we talked about these different facets of uh, and health consequences of, of torture. And important to realize that they're all interrelated. So fortunately, there's been a, a worldwide movement uh, internationally and then here in the US with specialized centers caring for survivors and also providing uh, training. Um, and so our program uh, in, in New York City um, we, in addition to the direct services, uh, as, as does the Kovler Center, and the, uh, provide a lot of training for future health professionals, uh, medical students, uh, residents, psychology interns and externs, social workers. Uh, so training groups working with immigrant and refugee populations, and then doing uh, various forms, uh, uh, various uh, research to try and figure out what it is that we're doing that is or isn't effective, as well as what's the burden of suffering. Um, this uh, is actually a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Alyssa Finley, who's now working in Atlanta and is uh, working with a uh, center that's uh, recently uh, starting, uh, starting there. Uh, we also uh, do a lot of training. Um, I spend a lot of my time criticizing uh, the uh, former INS, but we also uh, do a lot of training with them. And uh, we, uh, for several years, myself and actually colleagues from the Kobler Center and, and other centers, go down several times a year to Brunswick, uh, Georgia, where uh, all new asylum officers uh, receive intensive training in interviewing skills with individuals who've experienced uh, torture and trauma. And we actually do uh, mock interviews where we have actors who play the part of torture survivors and we do role playing and actually uh, call timeouts in the interview and give feedback about what what's, it seems things are or uh, aren't uh, working. And, and so I think to the asylum officers' uh, credit, they've really integrated this training into uh, their work. And I think it's really a model for other agencies, although many have not um, uh, followed this. Um, one area that's been a matter of a significant concern, I mentioned uh, the, uh, the, the, the fellow that I spoke about whose hand you saw, uh, Kofi. Um, when he uh, came here, he was lucky. He had a visa. For many individuals, especially since um, a new immigration law was passed in 1996, and then certainly much more in the wake of uh, September 11th, there is a uh, propensity to uh, detain 
Um, I think that's a, a euphemistic uh, term for uh, in prison, uh, asylum seekers uh, who come here fleeing persecution but instead are treated like criminals. And so a few years back we did a study uh, where we interviewed a sample of about uh, 70 uh, asylum seekers detained in the New York City area. Um, getting, I, I will say this, you know, I did this study, I live in Montclair, New Jersey, and we did this study in a uh, detention center, uh, Elizabeth, which is uh, about, I don't know, 20 minutes from where I live. I'll say I had m a much easier time getting into jails while I worked in Cambodia than I did into this uh, detention center uh, near uh, where uh, I live. And I think for anybody who's dealt with the immigration detention system, the term Kafkaesque uh, is one that uh, frequently comes to mind in terms of, I, I'm not even sure the individuals running the system understand the rules. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that, uh, that they don't. But uh, we found very high levels of anxiety, depression, uh, that got worse, not surprisingly, the longer individuals were uh, detained. And over and over, the asylum seekers, including torture victims who'd fled persecution, said, you know, I'm not a criminal. I didn't come here because I wanted to, but because I had to. I never thought that I would be treated like a criminal here in the United States. Um, but unfortunately, this happens with, uh, with alarming uh, frequency. It's estimated, um, I think at any given time, there's probably, probably now between like 70 and 100,000 uh, immigrants in detention. And I think estimates of around 15 to 20,000 uh, asylum seekers uh, each year uh, are uh, detained at some point. Some for a few weeks, but in our study, uh, the average length of time was, uh, I think, around six months. So, for example, there was one individual whom I cared for who had been beaten so badly in his uh, country of origin that he had developed a severe infection on his leg, had to have an amputation, um, subsequently still with a student activist, but, um, but fled his, uh, his country. And when he fled, he fled with an ill-fitting prosthesis. So he was in uh, the Elizabeth Detention Center for, I think, over six months with this artificial limb that didn't fit and was told, okay, well, when and if you get out, then you can get a, uh, an appropriate prosthesis. Uh, and so finally, he was granted asylum and released. But uh, frankly, when he came to us, he suffered from profound feelings of hopelessness and, and anger and sadness based on what he'd suffered in his native country, but also what he'd suffered uh, here upon his arrival to the U.S. And uh, these facilities, at least in the New York area, are literally windowless converted warehouses. And uh, Exhibit A is that what windows there are, they actually um, uh, cement, uh, cement over. Um, so. Uh, this issue is actually one that is, continues to be a matter of, uh, of uh, concern. And recently, I, I had the privilege to work um, with a group, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, which is a, an organization that uh, was created by an act of Congress that monitors primarily um, issues, as the name implies, concerning religious freedom. But the individuals who created this commission were, were wise enough to realize that in order for our asylum system to work for individuals fleeing religious persecution, they have to work for anyone. And so as part of the uh, uh, legislation that created this uh, commission, it also asked for them to do a, a study looking at uh, what uh, became known to, uh, to us, and the us was myself and several other individuals who were appointed as experts to do this study as the four questions of you know, whether 
Their uh, immigration officers are trying to encourage aliens to withdraw their applications or not um, appropriately referring individuals for, uh, uh, you know, uh, in interviews for asylum, uh, whether they're deporting them uh, mistakenly or detaining them under inappropriate conditions. And I would certainly uh, say even before having done uh, that study, um, I would argue that this is inappropriate. And by the way, in the Chicago area, sort of a good news, bad news, and, and Scott, correct me if I'm wrong on this, um, I believe actually Illinois or Chicago has one of the higher parole rates in the country um, for in individuals. That is, before you're granted asylum, you'll, you'll, you're, you're more likely to get out um, at least for a portion of the time. Whereas if you arrive in the New York, New Jersey area, it's almost certain that you will stay in detention the entire time. However, in the Chicago area, one of the downsides is that uh, you will be held in likely in a county jail. And in fact, you'll be held in, I think, one of like 40 or 50 county jails. Okay. So, so issues in terms of access to legal representation. Um, clearly, you know, for individuals in any detention center. So I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that the number has, uh, has decreased. Um, but uh, that in, the, in these facilities, you have asylum seekers, individuals who, who were tortured, literally sharing s uh, prison cells often with uh, convicted, potentially violent uh, uh, felons. Uh, so a real, uh, a real problem. We actually, as part of our portion of the study, um, and in doing this study, it, it was really quite remarkable. We had access to information that uh, previously, I, I don't even think the INS knew, or now they're part of the Department of Homeland Security, even knew how to access. And there was a lot of very chilling statistics that we found. For example, um, the average grant rate for asylum when you take nationwide for individuals who have attorneys is something around 30%. For individuals who don't have attorneys, I think it's, it's, it's like something like 3%. So clearly having an attorney matters, which means if you're in Nebraska or if you're put in a county jail in uh, somewhere in, uh, in uh, Louisiana, uh, you may well uh, and, and don't have access to an attorney, your chances of being granted asylum uh, are much, much lower. Also, we found that there's substantial, alarming variations in asylum grant rates, not only across the country, but within a particular jurisdiction. So that in one jurisdiction, there might be one judge who has a grant rate of, uh, you know, 35 or 40 percent, and then another judge literally in the next room uh, who has a grant rate of 2 or 3 percent. Uh, so, uh, I and I can't believe it's because that, well, all of the good cases go this way or that they go that, the bad ones go the other way. Um, well, the part of the study I was most involved with was what goes on at the ports of entry. And we actually did um, observations at about uh, 10 airports and border crossings around the uh, country. And on a positive note, we found actually that the systems, I think, were working better than I thought. And by that, I mean that individuals are supposed to be informed, asked about whether they have a fear of persecution, These and individuals being those arriving without appropriate documents, um, who were subjected to what's called a secondary inspection. So we found most of the time they were being asked if they had a fear of persecution, although we found in a significant proportion of the time, it was about, I think, 10% of the time, they weren't asked if they had a fear, although 
what we had somebody, what we did was we observed the interviews and then we would interview the, uh, as the potential asylum seeker and then also review the records. And we would observe that the question wasn't asked, but then we would look in the uh, records and, and find according to the uh, immigration officer's record that they created that yes, in fact, the question had been asked and the answer was no. And the problem there is that these records that are created then follow the asylum seeker throughout the process and are then often used to impeach the credibility of uh, the uh, asylum seeker. We also found um, that there's, uh, there's obligatory information, including uh, not, they won't use the term the right to asylum, but that information that there is an option of if you have fear, you should let us know and there's a means for you to make your case known and you can stay here. So we found actually about half the time that information wasn't being provided. And it matters if it's provided because we found that when it was provided, the uh, individuals were I think seven times more likely to be referred on for what's called a credible fear interview. That is where an asylum officer, uh, somebody with much more training than, uh, than the immigration officers, um, will ask an individual about whether or not they have a credible fear of persecution. And if they pass that interview, then they can go on to uh, go before a judge. So actually, one of the recommendations of our study was that, in fact, asylum officers uh, be allowed, if they interview somebody and they think they're credible and have a valid case, to grant them asylum right then and there, rather than subjecting them to uh, potentially to mandatory uh, detention. We also, you know, recommended that, okay, follow the rules that you have, namely that if an individual has demonstrated who they are, has uh, connections with the community, and that actually can include in a number of places around the country, there's, I think, really inspirational programs going on where often religious groups are, are offering shelter and haven to uh, asylum seekers saying, we will house you, we will, you know, uh, provide for your needs. Uh, so if individuals can demonstrate ties to the community, they will be uh, paroled. But as I mentioned, parole rates are quite variable. So we're saying, well, just standardize and clarify what are your, uh, what are your uh, policies. And that also, it's crucial that the information we were able to get uh, be continued to be provided. Um, in terms of monitoring the number of the grant rates of asylum seekers. Um, one very alarming statistic is uh, the appeals process. In the past, I think there was something like a 15, 20 percent uh, appeals uh, for somebody who was denied asylum by a judge that on review it would be overturned. That basically uh, has plummeted to somewhere, I think, around the order of like one to two percent, maybe even less. And part of that is because the number of judges who are doing appeals, uh, I think, has, has uh, plummeted uh, in this uh, environment. So I want to just spend a few minutes talking about this whole question that seems so ever-present about, is torture ever justified? And as we've seen, there's been a lot of discussion lately in terms of what do we mean by torture. Um, the memos uh, that have come to be known as the torture memos, defining uh, torture, I think, as that it was only torture if there was irreversible uh, you know, system failure or damage. I mean, some extraordinarily high level. And in addition to that, I think they also threw in that there had to be the intent of uh, the uh, torturer to cause this uh, irreversible uh, damage. Um, so I think it's uh, quite chilling that we're having uh, these discussions. And clearly, mistreatment 
and torture are part of a continuum, and sometimes it's hard to draw the line, but arguably both are wrong, and, and what might be perceived by one individual as benign may be profoundly traumatizing to another. So, for example, an individual who, against their religious beliefs, is forced to eat uh, food that uh, violates their religion can have very devastating uh, psychological, emotional consequences. Um, one procedure that I believe, according to, to uh, memos that became available that was, quote, a valid uh, interrogation method, something known as waterboarding, where you uh, actually restrain an individual to a board, submerge them underwater, uh, but you're not going to drown them. Um, to me, uh, you know, if it looks like, if it smells like torture, then it's probably, uh, it certainly is torture. And I can tell you from patients I've cared for who've been subjected to forms of asphyxiation like that, the, the long-term health consequences can be devastating. I have one patient I, I, I'm thinking of who'd been submerged in a vat of water who for years afterwards, whenever it rained or whenever he took a shower, he would gasp for air and panic. So back to this question, is torture ever justified? You know, I, I didn't ever think we'd be asking this question, but uh, we live in interesting times to uh, say the least, and we live clearly in scary times as well. First of all, I would say in answer to this, it's, it's dubious at best, morality aside, whether these methods are actually effective. Now, I can't tell you, and, uh, and these studies, you know, clearly have, haven't, nor could they be done, how many individuals do you have to torture to actually get useful information? But what I can tell you is in discussions I've had with a number of, of, of interrogators that many individuals, uh, by any means uh, not uh, to be considered uh, liberal, uh, say that these methods, morality aside, are not effective. You get a lot of background noise. Individuals brutalized will say whatever they think the interrogator wants them uh, to, uh, to say. Uh, and arguably, even in the ticking bomb scenario, which uh, individuals such as uh, Alan Dershowitz have argued is an appropriate uh, realm within which to have uh, a, um, a torture warrant, um, are, are justified. But even in those circumstances, misinformation uh, can be more harmful than no information. But in addition to that, I think the moral issues are quite chilling. First of all, I believe it, it clearly it cheapens who we are as individuals, as a society, to in any way justify or condone torture. Uh, and then, in a utilitarian manner, I am extraordinarily concerned that when we, as a country, as a society, in any way justify or rationalize torture, we are opening up the floodgates to arguably what is already a worldwide public health epidemic of torture. Torture is always justified within the context of national security, be it the Tibetan student activist, the uh, African uh, uh, student leader, or the Tibetan monk. Uh, it's always in that context of, uh, of security. And so I think we have to be very, very cautious of that. And I think when we look at you know, what's happened in, in Guantanamo, in Abu Ghraib, in Afghanistan, I, you know, I, I find myself asking, are we really safer as a result of uh, the, the discussions we've had, the questions uh, and the information we've seen? And I think uh, the answer is clearly we're not. And in fact, I think it's a much more dangerous world, let alone a cheapening of, uh, of uh, our uh, values. And I can tell you, as somebody who spends a lot of time caring 
for uh, survivors that the images from Abu Ghraib were devastating to the patients I, I care, for, care for in terms of you know, wondering about their, their own safety, uh, bringing up very disturbing memories of uh, their own, uh, their own uh, trauma. Uh, and I think it's uh, very clear uh, from the growing uh, documentation we have that our country has gone down way, far too, way too far down this road of condoning torture, of practicing torture, of, uh, as we've learned, uh, uh, the euphemistic term outsourcing torture. And in fact, all of these are clear violations of international conventions. It's just as wrong for our country to torture someone as it is to turn uh, that individual over to a country who they think will, um, will be torturing uh, them. Uh, and so I think actually the lessons from Abu Ghraib are ones we haven't necessarily uh, learned yet. And in fact, I think the notion that this was a bunch of bad apples is, uh, that I'm, I'm sure, I, th I have no question that uh, there is truly uh, evil and individuals uh, you know, who are capable of these things. But one of the chilling things we've learned is it's actually easier than we'd like to think for individuals to torture one another. There have been a number of landmark psychological experiments that have demonstrated this, that individuals put in situations, um, you know, a well-known experiment, the Stanford Prison Experiments, where you took a group of uh, college students and half were randomly selected to be prison guards and half to be the prisoners. And within a very short time, they degenerated uh, the uh, guards into acting quite sadistically. Um, and I was recently on a panel with uh, one of the former judge advocate generals who, who, who and, and I'll say many of uh, the senior military individuals are very, very alarmed by the discussions, discussions such as that the Geneva Convention is quaint, uh, that okay, torture under certain circumstances is justified, that the concerns are one, in addition to the morality, this is basically undermining uh, order and discipline and also putting our own troops at risk. But uh, one uh, uh, admiral uh, and former judge advocate general uh, said, uh, you know, that, you know, it's, it's, it's very chilling that these intellectual discussions at high, uh, you know, about what is torture and well is this or that, you know, the chilling effect that these theoretical legal discussions had uh, when they got down into the field uh, in terms of how individuals uh, uh, behaved. But uh, I think it's really uh, naive to think that this was just a bunch of bad apples uh, and that I think uh, this came in subtle and not so subtle ways uh, from uh, way up high, not the least of which from uh, not having appropriate systems in place to uh, prevent uh, torture. And so I think there needs to clearly be a full assessment and, and, and unfortunately we haven't seen uh, transparency has not been uh, one of the modus operandi's of, uh, of, of, of the way we've seen uh, our, our government working with regards to this, uh, this issue. But I think there really needs to be transparency about what are our procedures and policies uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in, uh, in, in, in Guantanamo. Uh, and these images that we've become all too familiar with um, are quite disturbing. And I, to me, again, one of the shocking things, these look like they could be your next door neighbors and here they are posed in front of a naked, uh, a pyramid of naked uh, individuals. Although I believe the more we learn about Abu Ghraib, what we'll also learn there that it wasn't simply uh, 
a bunch of gonzo guards uh, out of control who were doing this, but that it was also quite commonly in the context of interrogations and classic, uh, classic uh, torture. Um, clearly, physician medical participation in torture is a violation of fundamental uh, medical uh, ethics, either directly by participating in torture sessions or falsifying medical records. There have been some very alarming uh, reports of individuals who completed death certificates of uh, detainees, for example, at Abu Ghraib, saying, oh, this individual died from heart disease. Um, what uh, the report didn't say is that this was an elderly individual who, before he died of heart disease uh, or dropped dead of a heart attack, had been forced to stand out in the cold for several hours at a time, had been repeatedly beaten uh, and, uh, and uh, subjected to other forms of uh, abuse. So incomplete or even falsification of medical records, clearly a violation of medical ethics. And in fact, in this image, again from Argentina, this uh, physician uh, there is clearly not there in a health context, but to monitor uh, torture, uh, because the purpose of torture, again, isn't to kill the individual, it's to push them to the edge. Uh, and so the doctor's there to just make sure, okay, we don't keep them underwater too uh, long. So there's though, that's the hard, the, the hope is there's a lot that we as health professionals, we as a community can do to advocate against torture. One, to I think call for uh, hearings and call for transparency uh, about what has happened and accountability, uh, not simply uh, at the level of uh, guards being uh, put on uh, in court martial. Um, that uh, for those budding health or health professionals in the audience, to volunteer your time to assist torture victims. Uh, the Kovler Center, uh, other programs around the country, Physicians for Human Rights, have networks of health professionals who volunteer their time to examine torture victims applying for political asylum. That such documentation can really be crucial and make all the difference in terms of whether or not an individual is granted asylum, whether or not they're sent back uh, to uh, their torturer. Uh, and this, the science of pr providing this documentation has really increased. This is a picture of a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Vince Iacopino, who's one of the uh, authors of uh, the Istanbul uh, Protocol. So in closing, I would say uh, that clearly in my work with torture survivors, uh, and I, I acknowledge this is a difficult uh, discussion or, they, or uh, talk that you, you heard tonight, in my work with survivors, in our work with survivors, we are reminded on a daily basis of the brutality uh, and cruelty of uh, individuals to one another. But I don't find the work morose, and to the contrary, I find it inspiring because on a daily basis, I'm also reminded of the extraordinary resilience of the human spirit. And so I think it's in honor of those who've been subjected to torture and to those who remain each day at risk of torture that we must commit ourselves, must obligate ourselves to speaking out against torture and to ending this assault on human dignity. So I thank you for inviting me here and I would be happy to answer any questions that you have.